Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We're so glad you have joined us for this audio sermon. You can find a full archive of sermons on our website, holycommunion.net. This sermon was preached by the Reverend Mark Smith, Priest Associate, on Sunday, October 18th, the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My first opportunity to preach on this morning's gospel was in the aftermath of Michael Brown's murder in 2014. He had been killed several months before, just blocks from my parish in Northwoods a suburb of St. Louis. Ferguson has emerged as the national poster child for failed policing strategies, and the Black Lives Matter movement had gained traction nationally. The weeks immediately following Brown's death were marked by peaceful protests that too often tragically degenerated into violent confrontations instigated by outside agitators and the overly aggressive tactics of the police themselves. Sadly, more than half a decade later, it seems so little has changed. Young black men are being murdered by police officers gone rogue. The judicial system appears incapable of holding them accountable. And cities across the country are beset by citizen protests that quickly turn violent as militarized police seek to dominate rather than de-escalate confrontations. What has changed in recent years, however, is the structural dynamic of these protests. No longer the engagement of police, protesters, and small numbers of freelance agitators but a confrontation mediated by militant and often armed white supremacist groups. While asserting their presence as a defense of police uh, hamstrung by purportedly liberal restraints, their propaganda makes clear that this sham is just an excuse to intimidate the very people of color victimized by racially biased police. And the consequences of this significant perversion of civil protests are lethal. Two dead and one injured, for example, by a white supremacist in an otherwise peaceful demonstration in Kenosha, Wisconsin, following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, a young black man. Even when lives are not lost, the presence of right-wing militia and white nationalist groups at protests especially those involving issues of institutional racism, inflame passions and result in the physical violence recently seen in Nashville, Minneapolis, Chicago, and Richmond. Perhaps most disturbing, however, is Daryl Johnson's observation in his recent book, Hateland, A Long Hard Look at America's Extremist Heart, that to date, We as a nation 
have not mustered the political courage to address the violent threat to our democracy. No hyperbole here, dear friends. The right to assembly and peacefully protest without fear of violence is enshrined in our Constitution. The important role of nonviolent civil disobedience is carved in the human experience across centuries. But our national tolerance for extremism threatens both. Nonviolent protest and civil disobedience have a long history around the world, from Jewish opposition to the Roman imposition of idols in their cities, to Maori resistance to military conscription, and India's rejection of British rule. Both also have featured prominently in our nation's history, from the essays of Henry David Thoreau to the sermons of MLK and the exhortations of John Lewis. Public protest and civil disobedience, that's what happened at the lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, when seven college students refused to leave the whites-only section. It's what happened on the Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, when marchers refused to stop walking. And it's what happened on Interstate 70 here in St. Louis when the late Emory Washington, my predecessor as priest associate of Holy Communion, and other clergy blocked traffic to force contractors to hire more people of color for a road improvement project. However, despite the nonviolence of protesters, their actions were often met by extreme violence from those in power, especially the police. Whether in Selma, Ferguson, or Kenosha, civil disobedience, even when peaceful, has consequences, sometimes deadly consequences. This morning's lesson from Matthew's Gospel addresses just these circumstances and this dilemma for people of faith. As Christians, what is our responsibility to God, and what, if any, do we have to governmental authorities whose policies or actions we may abhor? And if we have responsibilities to both, how are they to be resolved when they seemingly are in conflict? As we've heard for the past several weeks, the religious leaders of Israel are again trying to trap Jesus. This time it's the Pharisees, a socially and religiously prominent group, and the Herodians, presumably a group of Israelites particularly loyal to the Roman puppet king, Herod Antipas. Having failed in their earlier attempts, they now try to butter up Jesus with feigned praise. They call him teacher. They acknowledge his sincerity, and they recognize that he doesn't give an inch in debate, showing neither deference nor partiality. Then, having really laid it on, they pop their trick question. Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor? At first blush, 
This might seem an innocent question, especially for we 21st century folks who accept, even if grudgingly, the need to support the work of government through taxes. But this question actually cut very deep for those who first heard it. You see, in Jesus' time, the emperor was revered as God, and that designation actually appeared on the coins with which taxes were paid. Thus, the trap the Pharisees and the Herodians were attempting to set presupposed one of only two possible answers, either one of which would spell the end of Jesus' legitimacy. If Jesus agreed that taxes should be paid to Caesar, they would accuse him of blasphemy, acknowledging a false god. On the other hand, if Jesus said taxes need not be paid, he would be arrested and executed for treason. Yep, the trap had been set. Or, so they thought. Jesus asked them simply to show him the very coin that they would have used to pay taxes. And then he asks whose likeness is on the coin and what his title is. Correctly, the Pharisees and the Herodians respond that it is the emperor. You can now imagine the, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's a duck moment. Jesus eyes the coin, notes that it has the emperor's likeness, and simply declares that it be given to him as payment for taxes. But he continues by demanding that the things that are God's be given to God. And in doing so, he very subtly rejects any assertion that the emperor is a god, let alone the god. Yet again, Jesus has disarmed those who have tried to entrap him and put an end to his prophetic ministry. Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and Herodians went away shaking their heads in amazement. Make no mistake, However subtle, what Jesus did was an act of profound, nonviolent disobedience, an act which could have cost him his life. Yet he acknowledged the responsibility to pay taxes, even to an occupying government. But he also made quite clear that these taxes were not being paid to God, nor did the emperor have the power of God. Jesus speaking truth to power, resolute and steadfast, determined yet peaceful. This was Jesus claiming the moral high ground and offering himself as the buffer against governmental tyranny. We, you and me, have much to learn from Jesus' example. In the wake of the rash of outrageous deaths of black men, at the hands of unhinged police and the protests that have followed. We are pointedly reminder of the dual responsibilities we have as citizens and as faithful Christians, both of which require decisive action. But those actions are not the same. 
Sometimes they coincide, for example, when both government and church work to ameliorate poverty, when we care for those with crippling diseases, when we seek to ensure quality education for each of our children. But often, our perspectives and our responsibilities are at odds. As, for example, when we demand peace in a world where leaders too frequently want to wage war, in a world where we protest the taxes we pay, which are used to enrich the wealthy at the expense of the poor, and when we stand in the streets, block traffic, and are arrested for demanding an end to racial profiling, unjustified shooting, and outright murder. Our faith requires our response, and our nation needs it. Jesus' direct, straightforward, and balanced response to the illegitimate use of authority not only provides us with the rationale for protest and civil disobedience, but also the model for how they are to be done nonviolently. This sermon was born out of the pain of continued violence against black men in America by police whose tactic racially target them and too often know no boundaries. It was born out of the frightening emergence of white supremacists and their attempts to intimidate and stifle peaceful protests against racism and police brutality. And it was born out of the need for the continued full-throated, nonviolent response of the faith community to such perversions of human dignity. But my concerns this morning are also immediate. In just two weeks, voters will cast ballots in an election that is marked more deeply divided than at any time since the Civil War. People are angry and afraid. The political rhetoric is incendiary, and the potential for violence simmers barely below the surface of the public square. Emboldened by the partisan call for the violent white supremacist group Proud Boys to stand back and stand down, it's not difficult to imagine extremist groups of all stripes responding violently to an election they believe has been rigged or stolen. Frankly, I cannot imagine any scenario in which all of us are satisfied with the electoral process, let alone with the outcome. The visions are too deep, trust too strained, and worldviews too incompatible. What I can imagine, however, is that we will stand, we people of faith will stand with all who strive for justice and peacefully gather in support of the rule of law in the electoral process. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus would have us do. This is what we must do. Amen.